We come as far as Luke chapter 5, verse 27, and the call, the summons of Matthew to follow Jesus, Matthew being a disciple of Jesus. Of course, he is the one that wrote the gospel of Matthew. And within these few verses, the major theme of the gospel of Luke is presented to us. And this is really key, crucial for us to understand going forward through the gospel. Luke, throughout his writings, gives individuals what I call an on-ramp to really listen and to apply what he is writing. And this is one of those on-ramps where Luke is appealing to people to allow them to further uh, listen, to allow them to further investigate everything else that he is going to say after this fact. And as a result, he is very evangelistic throughout his gospel. When the gospels were originally written, all of them had the intent of leading an individual to a personal relationship with Christ. They wanted to see the gospels spread. They wanted to see individuals come to Christ. They wanted individuals to receive eternal life. And all of that is wrapped in the writings of all four Gospels. And though they write to different audiences, that theme is consistent among all four of them. And so as we look at this particular account, the history of the culture at that time really frames the context of this particular passage. We need to understand one element of this thoroughly to truly understand why Luke included it in his gospel. It's interesting that Matthew's call to discipleship is found in three, Mark, uh, Mark Matthew, and Luke's gospel. And it is highlighted, it is ev- elevated to a place of prominence with all three of those. As a result, we must take that into consideration why the Spirit of God would want us to know so clearly about uh, Matthew's conversion. To do so, we must put it in its historical context. When you interpret the Bible, there is the method of hermeneutics that is called historical grammar hermeneutics. Now, from its title, you can understand where we are going with this. Hermeneutics is simply the science of biblical interpretation. It's a big word, and if you use it right in Scrabble and get triple-letter score, you usually dominate the game. You can impress your friends at parties and saying, oh, we talked about hermeneutics on Sunday. What is hermeneutics? I don't know, but it's a good word to use at parties. Hermeneutics is simply the science of biblical interpretation, and that I think all individuals should have a, an understanding of it I, to help you with your personal reading, uh, your devotional time in the Word of God. The methodology that we use here is called historical grammar, uh, grammatical hermeneutics, meaning that we take history into account to help frame the context of the passage, and we also take the grammar, the words that are used, what is meant by the words that the apostles wrote in the Greek, and understanding the definition of those words help us to understand what the original meaning and intention was for that passage. Make sense, right? Very simple. The historical kind of a little bit harder to find, but are easily found in resources today. You know, you can dive into 
you know, ancient Israel through different uh, books and so forth and give you an understand of the, of the history well enough to understand the passages in which they were written. We often mistakenly try to bring peop- the Bible to, two, to 2019 when I think we should bring 2019 back to the original intention of the Bible. Because the intention is the same. And it can be applied the same in our culture today as it could back when it was originally written. When we inadvertently try to make something relevant for our time today, we often have to take it out of its initial context and apply it in a haphazard manner, which often leads to false expectations upon the verse. Let me give you an example. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What did Paul mean when he said that? Well, the historical grammar would tell us that Paul is saying that whatever situation that he found himself in, either being a, a, a based or a, you know, abounding, poor or rich, you know, he was able to be content in whichever state he personally found himself in. Now, when we look at that verse, today people apply it to almost anything. They go rock climbing, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, they're standing on top of Sears Tower. I refuse to call it Willis Tower. I think that's communist, communism. Uh, no, you know, and jump off. I can flap my wings as hard as I possibly want, but I'm going to recite that verse as I fall. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know? like the coyote falling off the cliff with the roadrunner. Now, I believe that whatever God calls you to, he can equip you to fulfill. And I believe that God can do miraculous things. Let's make sure that God is in it. But to just loosely apply that verse randomly like that, we often set people up for a false expectation, don't we? But in its grammatical, historical content, he is simply talking about finding himself being content and no, no matter if he has a little or a lot. That's what was originally meant. Now, when we talk about grammar, we must make sure we don't make another mistake. The Bible you have in your lap is English. And if you want to look up a word, you can go to your English dictionary. And obviously, the English dictionary is going to give you the proper definition of the English word. Wait a minute. Hold on. Those English words represent Greek and Hebrew words that were written before. And so we need to understand how those Hebrew and Greek words were used in that culture to truly understand what is meant by them. We have an English representation, but however, we may not understanding. For example, if I were to say to someone, you know, I'm going to a board meeting, some may think that I'm going to a meeting and we're going to discuss lumber. Others may have the concept that you know, you're going to a board, which is a group of people. English changes over its usage. That's one of the incredible flexibilities of the English language. It's also a weakness. So, for example, 1611, when they translated the King James Bible, they used a word in English called shambles. Now, do you know what a shambles is? Well, you may say, well, that's my daughter's room, you know, or, you know, my wife's closet, or whatever. Uh, It's not mine, that's for sure. Um, Shambles in the original, in that English, meant marketplace. You wouldn't get that correlation at all today, would you? You got to be careful. 
So we have what's called Greek lexicons. And the lexicons tell us how the word was used in that culture by not only looking at the Bible as a first resource, but then extra biblical papers that were written in that same time to let us know how the word was used outside the context of the Bible, which though if, therefore you have to be somewhat careful because the Bible's inspired, they are not. And the reason I tell you all of this is because I want people to understand that when you read the Bible, the original intent is there, but you may have to do a little bit of work to get there. You may have to dig a little deeper, you just drive down on it a little bit harder. Pray about it as you're going through it. Because today we need to understand the relationship between this individual, the tax collector, and the society at large at that time. And once we understand that, we will understand why this is such a unique occurrence and why Luke and Mark and Matthew all record it. We'll also discover why Luke is using this as an introduction as to the entire theme of, its letter, of his letter. And why the original recipient, Theophilus, would be so intrigued by reading this in the first century, at the time when these things were being autographed by Luke himself and the other apostles. And it's a simple account. As Jesus is now in the region of Galilee, the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, 200 villages compiled of about 2 million people. This is where he did the majority of his teaching and also the majority of the miracles in which are recorded in the Gospels for us. These were hard-working people, blue-collar fishermen. And these people grew up in the tradition of fishing. It was something handed down from grandfather to father to son, etc. It was an art. It was something that they took great pride upon and in. And they were very masterful at what they did. And Peter was supposed to be one of the great fishermen of that time. And understanding that culture and, and understanding that environment, you understand the teachings of Jesus even further. And as he is walking now from one of these small villages to another, we leave Peter's home earlier in chapter 5 where the individual had been lowered through the, Peter's roof uh, healed by the Lord. The Pharisees took exception to the manner in which the healing occurred and the phrase that his sins had been forgiven. As Jesus is now leaving that scene, he is on the roadway and he comes to one of these tax booths that were located on the side of the road. And there in the booth was this individual named Levi, who we know to be Matthew. And he calls Levi to follow him and to become a disciple of him. And the religious leaders took absolute exception to this, further condemning Jesus and his ministry and further uh, uh, distancing themselves from the reality that Jesus was actually the Messiah. And as we read and pick it up in verse 27... After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. 
And leaving everything, he arose and followed Jesus. During the time of the Roman Empire's oppression of Israel, they levied such heavy taxes against the Israeli people that they were oppressive and completely out of line. The Israeli people had, the Jewish people had no representation before the emperor. He could simply charge all that he wanted to charge. There was an, a tax that they would call a imperial tax, which went back to Rome and to Caesar for the furtherance of the army, the Roman army, to continue to progress in their conquest of the known world. And then there was a local tax that went to the Herods. And the Herods were simple individuals that were placed in positions of authority by Rome. They were merely puppets. And they were more uh, aligned with Rome than they were the Jewish people and the Jewish culture. And these taxes were collected throughout the year at certain periods of time. And most of the taxes were collected at a specific location within each town. And there, that was manned by an individual like Zacchaeus later on in Luke's gospel, who was the oversight. He was one of the authorities in the tax collection uh, environment. But also, taxes were collected on the major roadways, at booths. And that appears to be where we find Levi, in one of these booths. Now, we know all about booths on roadways, don't we? I think we were promised at one time that all the toll booths in Illinois would be removed in the 1960s. How's that worked out for us? I was also, my dad, being a principal in the Chicago school system his whole entire career, he always got angry because that money was originally supposed to go to the school districts. And do you know the school districts saw very little of it collected and it went for other things. We know all about this kind of taxation. And the way the Romans would man these positions, either being at the official tax collection site within the city or any of these booths, is that they would have individuals bid on this position. You had to pay the Roman Empire to fulfill one of these positions. And so it went to the highest bidder. So you can imagine that it was only wealthy people that got to share in these tax collections. And then they had set tax amounts, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But the way these individual tax collectors were paid is that they were paid by adding on an addition to the tax, to the levy. And whatever extra they gathered was their personal salary. And the Roman Empire uh, would set guards behind the tax collectors, either at the booths or at the main tax collection place, and would intimidate the people who came up because when people were taxes, they knew what they owed based on percentages, which I'll tell you in just a minute. But what they didn't know is how much surcharge was going to be placed on top of it. And... You know, for example, in the state of Illinois, if you want to file your taxes online, there's legislation being considered right now that you have to pay to file your taxes online. You know, just another way to get, you know, taxes. You know, we taxed soda pop and that worked really well. 
And so they could add a surcharge. So the people, when they came up with their taxes, were always hoping that they had enough on them to cover whatever they were going to be charged. Because if they didn't, the Roman guards behind them could seize their material possessions, including their children. This was devastating. And so there was always that concern and there was always that fear that accompanied one who was paying taxes. For example, they had what was called in that culture a poll tax. And this was simply, you've been born, so therefore you shall be taxed. It started for a young man when he was 14, and he went till he was 65. For a young woman, it started when she was 12, and it went to 65. I have no understanding of why they were two years earlier. I don't know. They had an agricultural tax, anything that they grew. They either had to give 10% to Rome of the actual materials, or they had to pay the financial equivalent of 10%. If they didn't want to give the actual product, they could pay it off in money to Rome. If they made oil or wine, it was 20%, either of the material or the calculated cost of the 20% of the annual making of the wine. They had a toll tax, and this is where Matthew comes in. And it was literally, if you were walking by, they could tax you, you know, and they would tax you based upon your age and so forth for simply walking. If you had a cart, they would tax you plus the four wheels of the cart, Then if they saw that the cart had a load on it, they would go through the load and your luggage because they would consider that a shipping tax. You're moving stuff from one place to another. But when it came to their income tax, that was pretty modest. It was 1%. (laughs) It's because they were taxed everywhere else. And so these individuals who bid for these jobs, who could charge extra to each and every individual, whatever they wanted to charge. For example, if they didn't like you, they could really hit you up with fees. You know, it's like when you go to the ATM and there's like, it's going to cost you $3 to get your own money. Really? Hmm. Wow, that's a convenience fee. Okay. You know, you go to your own bank, they charge you 10 bucks. No, I'm kidding. But you get the idea. And these individuals, because they were Jewish, were hated by the people. It was a betrayal to the people. They were traitors. They were despised by the local populace in every way possible because of what they did. They were excluded. The religious leaders would be so uh, rude to the tax collectors for the sake of righteousness that when a Pharisee would come to one of these booths, he would literally throw the money at him because he didn't want to be touched or defiled by him in any way, shape, or form. And these people were getting rich, aligning themselves with Rome, and ripping off their neighbors because Rome, when a person bid on on one of these positions, would have them serve in the village that they actually lived in. And you know what the purpose was? Well, to watch how things were going. 
And if they knew that a big catch had taken place that day, oh, you bet they manned that booth even quicker because they wanted more money from other people's labors. And so they were despised. It was a profession of dishonesty, of greed. And those who fulfilled these these particular positions were hated by the people. When John the Baptist was baptizing, he said to the tax collectors who came to him in verse 12 of chapter 3, I'll read it to you. He says, the tax collectors also came and were baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And John said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And this was addressing that, uh, that increase, that fee that they would add on to simply gain wealth and gain riches. But Levi, and historians debated why he's called Levi, either his name was Matthew Levi, or more likely he was of the Levitical tribe, who should have been a priest unto God. And rather than serving the Lord, he's ripping off the Lord's people. These tax collectors, also known as publicans, were so hated by the Jewish people and the religious leaders and to the common person, they were absolutely one who was to be avoided at all cost. They were believed to have not only portrayed their country, but violated the law of Moses so greatly that there was no chance of repentance for them before God. The famous commentator Barclay, he actually stated that there was one tax collector that was honest, and because it was such a rarity, they gave him a monument (laughs) to be remembered by. But as a result, we find now that this tax collector has been approached and called by Jesus, and notice what it says there, he was willing to leave everything behind and follow him. We have no idea of the amount of wealth Matthew turned from at this moment to follow Christ. We have no idea, but the sacrifice must have been greater than any of the others, or all of the others combined most believe. But yet Matthew was ready to follow the Lord. Why was Matthew inclined to turn his direction and to heed the call of the Lord upon him and follow this man that was being rejected by the religious leaders but accepted by the people. What brought it about in his heart and mind to do such a thing? I believe we're told that in just a minute, but we come to verse 29. Because after following Jesus, and that is the term that the Bible uses for believing and becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's not only academic belief that God is interested in within our lives. He wants us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, emulating the life of Christ in and through our new life that has been given to us by God for the purpose of glorifying Him and being a light in the darkness. Matthew was so taken back by this invitation that he gives and allows for a feast to be held to invite Jesus not only to interact with him, but all of his friends. Now, tax collectors, because they were so despised, the only ones within the cities that would even think about interacting with them or being friends with them are other tax collectors and those that the society called sinners. 
Now again, in our culture, we use this word so differently than they do here in our text. A sinner is one who purposely rebelled against the law of God at that time. It's one that basically said, I want nothing to do with God. I want to live my own life. And they lived a life of complete debauchery from, you know, revelry and partying and drinking and prostitution and so on and so forth, completely in objection and rebellion to all that the law had to say and to what God had to say and the religious leaders. And these were the only ones that would interact with Matthew. But because Matthew has found this individual and because this individual more more precisely found him, Matthew wanted to share this with everybody. So he brings them all together and has a party, a feast. And in that culture, undoubtedly, Matthew, to host this feast, was a wealthy man. And he was willing to spend it on the Lord and his friends. And the Lord joined them. And the Bible says the Lord reclined with them on on couches and ate with them and interacted with them and made himself approachable to them and reached out to them, and invited them. And as a result, his disciples are then challenged by the religious leaders. How could Jesus, how could your rabbi do this? How could your master do this? Don't you know that he is defiling himself? These are the religious leaders that would tie their robes to their bodies as they walk through the city streets to make sure that their robes never touched a tax collector, a sinner, or a Gentile. Because the moment they did, they were defiled in their mind before God. And here Jesus is interacting with these people openly. Openly. And they protested to it to no, to no end. How is this possible that your rabbi would do such a thing? And in verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This was, this was a scandal. This was something that just did not take place. And yet... It is interesting to me that when Jesus does interact with the tax collectors and the sinners of that society, he is never rejected by them, is he? He's open, they're open to him. And he shows them a mercy and a grace that they've never experienced before. He apparently shows them a love that they have never interacted with before. And as a result he now has an opportunity not only to share with Matthew, but with all of them. And he's testing the religious leader's hypocrisy at this point. For the only ones that Jesus ever rebuked through the gospel was Peter. (laughs) That's a whole story right there. And the religious leaders. But with these people, he showed love and compassion. And then he answers their question. And it's in the answer to their question that we find the real crux of the major theme of this gospel. And Jesus answered them in verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke, being a doctor, I believe, used these words very eloquently. The greatest disease destroying human life today is sin. And Jesus, calling himself a physician, came to heal the greatest disease killing humanity today, sin. We die because of sin, though the catalyst of our physical death may be a disease or an accident or just old age. But the reason for our death is because sin has entered into this world. And Jesus says, I have come to deal with that. He says, now those who are not sick, they don't seek a doctor. If they don't believe that they're sick, and therefore they don't believe that they have need of a doctor. But those who are sick seek out a doctor, a physician for healing. And as he goes on to say, I have not called the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. He is saying this in regards to the self-righteousness that the Pharisees are living within. They believed that they were right before God, but in actuality they were really far from God. They were hypocrites. They were self-righteous. They looked to obtain and maintain their righteousness before God in and through all that they did rather than relying on Christ to provide it for them, relying on God to provide it for them. They had no need of Jesus. They thought they were perfectly acceptable before God. And that self-righteousness blinded them to their own personal need of salvation through Jesus. When I witness to people, share the gospel with people, one of the most difficult persons to share with is a religious person. Because they fully believe that they are right before God through their religious system. That was my mother for 30 some odd years. She would resist me every point of the way. I went to Catholic school. I went to Christian school. I did communion. I did all of these things. And I would challenge each one of those through scripture. I would show her that she cannot obtain righteousness in and of herself, but must come to Christ for that righteousness. And it wasn't until she came to a point in her life that her physical body was failing so greatly that she knew that she was incapable and was no, no longer sure of her righteousness before God that she has provided for herself. It was only until then, only until then, was she then open to hear what Dina had to say to her and finally receive Jesus Christ before she died. Religious people are very difficult to talk to about God. In our culture today, we don't struggle with that as much as we did 30 years ago. Today in our culture, we, we struggle with individuals who reject God on the basis of what they believe is atheism, which I would argue is simply agnosticism. I don't know in my 30 years of being a pastor now if I've ever met a true atheist. Because once I ask a few qualifying questions to that atheist, or once I challenge the premise of knowing all things enough to discover that there is no God, because I believe to truly rule out the fact that there is a God, you have to be all-knowing as God is all-knowing. You have to know everything. And they cannot attest to that. 
For example, if you want to deal with an atheist, here's a great way of approaching this subject. Especially those who believe that intellectualism has weeded out any possibility of the existence of God, our advancements in science, our advancements in uh, sociology, our advancements in whatever uh, technology or, or so forth, really rule out the fact that there is any God. So here's what you do. You draw a circle on the board, and you write in the middle of that circle all knowledge. And then you ask them, how much of this circle do you believe that you know? Out of all the knowledge that can be known, how much do you know? And none have ever filled in the whole circle. They always fill in about a quarter or an eighth or whatever. And I ask them then at that point, so is it possible that God resides in this portion of the circle that you have not darkened? Well, yes, I guess he could. Well, that makes you an agnostic, not knowing if there is a God or if God is a knowable, not an atheist. An atheist says there is no God, and I don't believe you can make that statement legitimately. Using the own, their own rationale of all knowledge to make such a conclusion. Once you get them to the point that there is, that they don't know if there is a God or not, now you have them on a playing field that you can work with. Now you have them in a position where you can show them the, the complete um, unanswerable questions apart from the realization that there is a God. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in his culture. He's saying, listen, you who are righteous, you're never going to seek out a physician, but those who believe that they are sick, they will. And he's referring to those individuals, the tax collectors and the sinners that were so isolated by, from society that they knew that they were at ad enmity with the, the culture in general. They knew they were hated by the people. And it's in that separation that I believe God used to lay the groundwork in their lives to know that they need God. And once you deal with an agnostic, begin to work on that area of their life where they, are, they know that they're separated from something that they need desperately. And it's easy to do. But their separation from the society would have, under the Mosaic law, caused them to be put to death. 173 times in the law itself, the Bible says an individual shall be cut off from the nation of Israel if they violate certain laws and protocols. However, though, because of the Roman oppression, Israel could not carry out capital punishment. They had to let the Romans do it. Of course, that's why Jesus was crucified instead of being stoned by the, Rome, or by the Jewish people. So now you had all of these sinners who were rebelling against the law of God who should have been cut off by being stoned according to the Old Testament, but now they couldn't do anything. So there's a, a whole, you know, subculture developing. And Jesus goes right for that subculture. He goes right into it. It's amazing to me. It is absolutely floors me that the God of all the universe reaches out to these people that have been excluded and ostracized due to their own personal uh, you know, actions, and he reaches them with grace and with mercy and understands that their realization of their spiritual 
depravity before God is the basis in which he is going to offer the grace and love on behalf of God to them. We may not be religious in our society to the degree we were 30 years ago, but I will argue that everybody believes that they are actually better than they truly are. And they will use that as a justification for their reason for not coming to God. Well, I'm not really a sinner. I'm not really as bad as the person next to me. I'm not really as bad as... And they always go to Hitler and the big guys first, you know, Hitler and Gacy and so on and so forth. And I'm glad glad you're not as bad as Hitler. I'm really glad, but that doesn't make you perfect before God. See, they don't think they need a doctor. They don't think they need him. And therefore, they're not going to seek after him. But Jesus, on the other hand, he goes right for them. And he approaches them. And he calls them. And he ministers to them. And this is why by the third century, Basil uses the term for the first time of Jesus, our great physician, our great healer of the one need that we have so desperately, and that is the healing of the effects of sin within our lives. I think that's appropriate in every way, shape, or form. He says in the parallel passages... And I think it's interesting that Matthew is the only one that includes this phrase in his writing. Now, this is the one that Jesus spoke to. Mark doesn't include it, and also Luke doesn't include it. But I believe Matthew is giving us a glimpse into why, at that moment, he dropped everything to follow Jesus. Notice what he says here in his writings. But when he heard it, now he's writing of himself. I think this is fascinating. He that is himself, Matthew said, I'm sorry, he's speaking of Jesus. Those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. And then Jesus goes on to say, go and learn what this means. We don't have that in the other accounts, but Matthew remembers it. And then Matthew tells us what the meaning is. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not called the righteous but sinners. Matthew's saying, in Christ, I found the mercy of God. And it radically devastated my heart. That mercy was so valuable to me that I left everything to follow him. I wanted and desired that relationship with God, but my sin was the element that kept me from it. And the society and the religious leaders told me that I was beyond the capable reach of God. I was beyond his mercy. I was beyond his grace. I was beyond his love. And then Jesus came. And he said, I desire mercy. Could you imagine the hope that just radically changed Matthew from the inside out. And he leaves everything to follow Jesus. For us today, I am not going to give you a demographic of society that I believe fulfills the role of the tax collector and the sinner perfectly. I don't want to reduce our society to that kind of category. But let us, I want to say this, 
that those people are still out there today, that they are distant from God, they are far from God. They don't believe that anything could ever save them. And this is when Jesus says, I can. There are people whose lives are so broken and so devastated because the world has eaten them up and chewed them up and then spit them out, left them for dead. And Jesus says, that one is for me. These are the people that the world and our society has cast out. They'll never be anything. They'll never be anyone. They'll, they'll always be a scourge and a stain on our society. It's those that Jesus reaches out to. It's those that Jesus offers the hand to. It was me when I was 16 years old that God found me. Who am I? The God of all the universe at that moment in time pierced through everything and grabbed my heart. I didn't deserve it. I was one of those far from God. But I will tell you in my heart and in my mind, I wanted to believe. And God showed me that he was real. If this is the heart of Jesus, should it not be our heart as a church? Do we make the mistake of summing a person up by their appearances and determining, oh, they'll never come to God. They're too far from God. They don't matter to God. Who are we to determine someone doesn't matter to God? No. We are simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find some food. That's who we are. We are no better than anybody else. We are simply saved by the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. Therefore, let's get our hands dirty and let's reach out to those people. And when you feel inclined to do it, do it. Reach out an extended hand. The other day, Dean and I were coming home from, I think we, were, we got dinner one evening. And as we were driving home, it was one of those extremely cold nights. And as we were driving home just the last month, we pulled up at an intersection and there was a homeless gentleman you know, sitting there. And we're looking to give him whatever we can. And all we could find at that moment were some gift cards. And he was so grateful for the gift cards and he was so thankful and so forth. And I turned the corner and I looked up and there was an ATM machine. And I flipped the car you know, around, zipped up into the ATM machine, paid the five bucks in convenience fee because it wasn't my bank, got this gentleman some money, and we zipped around back to the intersection again, and he was gone. It was like, whoa, was he an angel or something? Wow, we really got some brownie points. We at least gave him a gift card to Panera. I hope they got Panera in heaven. you know. So then Dina looks down the street, and she goes, no, 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 no there he is. And here I am in this Scion box, you know, toaster, and I'm chasing this homeless guy down the street with my car. And then we finally zipped through a parking lot, and we weren't going to miss this guy, and we came up so we could hand it off to him, and literally, Dina rolled down the window, we came flying up to him, he was like this, and she hands him the money, and she goes, here, we wanted to make sure you had this too. And, you know, it was just an incredible thing. And you know what he said? I think Dina can remember. He said, like, God bless you, or God will bless you, or I'll pray for you, or whatever. It was incredible, the feeling. God cared about that person so much 
that he brought Dean and I around at that time so we could at least provide something for him for that. And the next thing you know, we were going to say, oh, you know what, he's walking to the train station. We went back, and then he did disappear. We're like, whoa. But you know what? I'll never forget that night. And I'm so glad we listened to the Spirit. I'm so glad we reached out. This has nothing to do with me. I'm not glorifying myself. You know, don't think of that for a minute. The point was, is I want you to be that sensitive. You see somebody, help them. You see somebody down, ask them if you can pray for them. Do you know, my wife asks everybody, well, can I pray for you? No one has ever said no to her. Just interact with people. Think, I don't care what the religious society says about you. I don't care what others say about you. Be Jesus to the society, right? Because that was us at one time, wasn't it? And if someone didn't take a risk with us, we wouldn't be here today. And I think of Jesus. He was showing his disciples that these people mattered. Specifically Peter. Historians write that Peter despised Matthew. Why? Because Matthew undoubtedly collected taxes from Peter in exorbitant fashions as Peter was a fisherman there in the area. And now these two were serving hand in hand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Incredible, isn't it, what Jesus can do? God can restore anybody. God can save anybody. God can heal anybody. God can do great things if we allow him to do great things in and through us because he has called the sick. He has come for the sick, the sinners who are in need of repentance.